You're listening to TopCast, this old pinball's online radio. For more information, visit them anytime, www.marvin3m.com slash TopCast. Tonight on TopCast, we have a designer that designed a number of games for Bally and Williams. Uh, going from Special Forces to Party Animal to Elvira and the Party Monsters to Whitewater to Demo Man to Scared Stiff and now to his current job with Stern in Pirates of the Caribbean. Special guests. Special guests. Special guests. Special guests. So I'd like to introduce Dennis Nordman to TopCast tonight. Uh, again, Dennis started working with Bally in the early 1980s and made the transition over to Williams when Williams bought out Bally in 1988. Uh, he did a number of very, very popular games, including the two Elvira games um, and Whitewater, which definitely is a lot of people's favorites. And he's working for Stern. He did Pirates of the Caribbean, and he's currently working on a new game for Stern. So I'd like to give Dennis Norman a call right now, and we'll give him a little talk here on TopCast. Hello. Hey, Dennis, it's Clay. Can you hear me okay? That's not bad. You know, what were your roots like? Did you play when you were a kid, or how did you get involved in pinball? I think um, the first pinball machine I ever saw, I was probably about, I guess, seven or eight years old, and um, one of my father's, one of my father's friends had one, and, uh, I just I didn't play it very much. I just remember being fascinated by all the the bright lights and things. And that may even have been a flipperless game. That was in the in the um, early fifties, mid fifties, probably. Then I didn't really rediscover pinball till I was about twenty one or twenty two. And uh, I think I uh, I played at Cedar Point in Sandusky, Ohio. They used to have a huge arcade there, and they had a a lot of games. Yeah. Is that where you're from? I'm from Columbus, Ohio. That's when I rediscovered it, and then um, I played on and off. And I see later in life, I went back to Ohio State University to major. Well, I was about thirty to major in industrial design. And during my senior year, um, I designed a really futuristic pinball cabinet. And I used to go play pinball a lot as my research. So how did you get hooked up with uh, with Bally? Because that was your that was your f- your first real you know quote real pinball job, right? Yeah. Well, what I did was I built um, I built a model for my for my design project. I built a model of this game, and then I had to leave college during the second quarter of my senior year to have back surgery, and they didn't offer the courses again for another year. So <clears throat> during that summer. While I was recovering, I built a full-size version of that cabinet and um, went to Schaefer Distributing in Columbus and showed it to them, and they thought it was pretty cool. Chuck Farmer had worked for them, and at the time, he was president of the Bally Pinball Division. So they called Chuck, and we set up an interview. I put the cabinet in my van and drove from Columbus to Chicago and uh, made a presentation at Bally Pinball Division. They were in um, Bensonville at the time, and uh, they hired me as a cabinet designer. Now, what was unique about your cabinet? I mean, this wasn't a whole pinball machine. It was just a cabinet, right? It was just a cabinet, and it was designed to have...
unique. It was on a pedestal. It didn't have four legs. It was on a pedestal, and I had designed it so that all the uh, circuit boards and components would have been housed in the pedestal. The play field, the, let's see, the glass level, the play field level was about three or four inches lower than a regular pinball game at the time. But I had raised areas where you could rest your hands for the flipper buttons, and my reason for making it lower was that, so that younger kids could see the play field a lot easier than on a, on a regular pinball game. Did they ever incorporate any of your design? Uh, design uh... One thing that I, when I designed this game, this cabinet, at the time I designed it, games were digital, but they still had the digital displays, stuck in four places in the back glass, like the, where the old drum reels used to be. And um, <clears throat> my reasoning was I put all the displays down in an area just above the play field so that players could easily act, you know, view their scores while they're playing. And the, so the one thing that did come from that cabinet was um, all the scoring areas being put down at the bottom of the back glass for all four players. What, well, what game did they first do that in? I believe uh, Rapid Fire was the first game that did that. What year was this that uh, this whole thing took place? Oh, man, you're going to ask me years. <laughs> um, I, I, early 1980s. So what was your first, uh, when your first official job was a, a cabinet designer, but I mean, did you stay as a cabinet designer for very long? Nope, not for, not for very long because... After a year, Bally merged with Midway, and I got laid off. So the things that I had done during that year, I designed the rapid-fire cabinet and the Mr. and Mrs. Pac-Man cabinet, and then they had a lot of rapid-fire cabinets left over, so they turned them into 8-Ball Deluxe limited edition games. And um, Yeah, and Centaur, too. That's right. Uh-huh. And... Um, and then I was working on some redemption games, some ideas from uh, a toy company in Chicago. Marvin Glass used to submit ideas to us, and I, I worked on a couple ideas for redemption games, but then I got laid off after a year. And then I went to um, Gottlieb, which became Milestar. So you were in the middle of the, all these transitions going on. A lot of transitions and, and ended up being laid off. How long were you at Gottlieb? I think I was there for a year, a year and a half, and um, I didn't design pinball games there. I submitted ideas for video game ideas, and my game, um, Us Versus Them, was their second laser disc game that they did. The first one was Mach 3, and then I wrote the script and built some models and things for the Us Versus Them laser disc game. But then you got caught in the transition there, what, with Premier, or or was it with Milestar? I think uh, Coca-Cola had purchased Milestar, and so I got lost in that transition. So how did you end up back at Bally? After Milestar, what did I do? I was unemployed for a while, and I tried to sell some redemption games to, I think it was Grand Products, were, were they around, I forget... Yeah, it might have been Grand Products. That didn't work, but then I submitted a pinball game idea back to Bally again. And this was my first pinball game, and I 
I made a drawing, and my theme was, um, at the time it was called Ranger, uh, based on the Army Rangers, and that's right after the movie uh, Rambo had come out. And that game, and so they liked it, and they hired me. Of course, I still knew a lot of people there. Jim Patla was there, and Greg Freres, and Greg Kamek. That game became my very first pinball game, which was Special Force. Now, yeah, you see, you were a little ahead of the curve. If you had waited until that Tom Hanks movie had come out when the... <laughs> You know that World War II movie with Tom Hanks, and you know they were all part of the Rangers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> See, you could have ca- you were ahead of the curve. You could have capitalized on that. <laughs> so the so special forces when you designed that, you designed that outside of Bali and then submitted it. Did they make very many changes? Com- you know, with the uh, the final. Actually, I I went into Bali and then I designed the game at Bali. With, with a lot of Jim Patla's help, because I had never done a game before, and I, I actually wired that game by myself. I couldn't even possibly do that today. <laughs> was it was it pretty fun to do that? Wiring wasn't fun, but it was it was um, it was really fun to design and build my first game. Absolutely, yeah. Now I was looking on the Internet Pinball Database, and they have a thing called Special Force Girls. What's that all about? I believe that was a German game. That was the German artwork package for Special Force because they were very uh, against war themes, so you couldn't sell a war theme in Germany. So they they just put some more put babes on the back glass and called it good. Back glass made it made it more tolerable. Now the the helicopter in um, in Special Force is kind of cool. I mean, did you have any resistance from? Well, actually, the whole texture to the the whole game has like a almost a, a um, you know a very molded plastic texture to to look like uh, you know like uh, I don't know the Vietnam or something like that. Did was there any resistance to getting all that work done and all the molding and and figures and that? Um, yeah, that that was my my goal was to make it look very jungle like and war like, and actually it wasn't um, molding; it was all flat butyrates that um, at the time when Bally was doing any butyrate stacking, they used nuts and bolts, and I used um, PC board standoffs to attach all the butyrate pieces together, and they all came in white. But I didn't know this. Jim Patla told me this, that you could just use RIT dye and dye those nylon standoffs green. So we had ladies in the factory boiling pots of RIT dye, and I went out to the store and bought some green dye, and and we, we dyed all those posts green. Were they pretty happy with the sales numbers? They sold like I don't know twenty seven hundred and fifty of those games. With it, was that a pretty good uh, a pretty good run for them? I thought the run was closer to four thousand for that game. But yeah, they were happy with it. It did okay. So you you did pretty good for your first game then. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh huh. And the funnel. That I don't think there ever been a funnel on a game before. At least not a modern game that I knew of. Line drop targets. The innovative feature there was that. They were memory drop targets, so each target had a coil, so if you earned rockets, you could push a separate flipper button and fire a rocket and knock the drop target down without hitting it with the ball. Yeah, that is kind of a that is kind of a cool fixture. Did you, um, that, that used the Bally 6803 board system that kind of had like a, uh, you know, they, they used this kind of weird thing for the computer control lighting where they had one 
SCR that could control two lights depending on the wave of the of the AC current. Was that all pretty confusing, or you didn't have to deal with that? I didn't have to deal with any of that, thank God. <laughs> yeah, I've had to fix a few of those, and they've always been tricky. I'm not I'm not very very good when it comes to electricity. I can put in a light bulb. That's about it. So now your next one was party animal, and that was I got to admit that was one of my first pinball machine purchases and when i heard that game like the audio track burp and belch i i just said i gotta have this game <laughs> another one of my innovations a belching game well when you hear those games today they sound terrible don't they no actually they don't i, I think that one is pretty cute frankly that game that was the hardest pinball game for me to design because everybody probably has one good game in them because you accumulate ideas for years and years and years and I used up all my good stuff on Special Force and to design a second game was very difficult to come up with ideas and figure out how to do it. Now who came up with that theme? See, how did that, I don't remember how that came about. You know, it's kind of a cool game. Now, I heard that there was two different trans lights for the game, like a bar version and a, you know, a, 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 I don't know what, a, a there was a beer version and a dad's root beer version. The well, dad's root beer version was more for family location. And, and so was that your idea or Bally's? It wasn't my idea. It was probably marketing department decided they needed that. Did they actually sell a lot of those, you know, dad root beer ones? I, I have no idea. I've never even seen the dad's root beer one before. I remember seeing them. I don't have, I don't have a translite or anything of that. I didn't save enough stuff. My wife used to always say, quit bringing that crap home. <laughs> so it's all in the bottom of some of some dumpster somewhere. Yeah. She used to work for, um, I met her, she worked for Chuck Farmer. She was the, Chuck was the president of the Bally Pinball Division, and she was his secretary. And before that, she was secretary to Bill O'Donnell, Jr., and she told me stories of just throwing so much stuff out. Every time she needed room in the stock room, she just threw away tons of promotional stuff. Flyers and goodies and plastic toys and this and that. She would just toss it in the trash. Driving all the all the current pinheads crazy. Oh, I threw it all out. Oh, this stuff's valuable on eBay now. <laughs> all right, so after Party Animal, you did the, the Blackwater... The Blackwater 100, which was kind of like the the last uh, the last Bally game, and it's a motorcycle theme. And once again, man, talk about a play field that's pretty pretty sophisticated with lots of what you call it, butyrate. That one actually had a lot of vacuum forms on it. So no, that wasn't flat. It was just flat plastics, and we called them butyrates because that's the kind of plastic they were made out of. Playfield plastics is maybe what most people call them, and uh, but. So uh, Special Force just had stacked flat plastics, but Blackwater 100 had actual vacuum form molded plastics. Now that's a wild game. I mean, I've, uh, a friend of mine has that, and I play it. And um, I mean, it's just, I, I mean, from a design point of view, I, I mean, that was like, I, I've never seen anything like that in a game. I really had fun designing that game. I, I like to try to do things really wild and different. My ideas for that game try to make it as much like a motorcycle race as I could. Are, are you a motor motorcycle person? I used to be. I, I've actually raced in the, in the actual Blackwater 100 race a few times. 
and I used to uh, I used to race a lot when I was back in Ohio. Did you have to get a uh, a license to use that name Blackwater? Since that, and actually the race promoter and his wife uh, came out to Bally and they to have a game designed after their race. Was that a, a hard license to get? Oh no, that was easy. Did you have to pay him any money? Yeah, I'm sure we paid the money. I forget how much we paid them, but um, it was a license like any other license. And how did you think that game came off? Well, I was happy with um, the way the play field layout and all my crazy shots and my up and down ramps and the area back by the where the bottom arch used to be. I wasn't happy with the sounds or the music on that game. Why? What was wrong with the sound of music? I just didn't think there was enough effort put into it at the time. Was that because Bally was kind of sliding downhill at that time? I think so, and they just, you know, they weren't they weren't very enthusiastic about putting a lot of effort into the game. How was the transition from when Williams bought Bally Midway? I mean, how did that whole thing go down? We just came to work one morning, and they told us we were sold. And actually, that day, I wasn't there for some reason. I don't remember, but my wife was working there, and and all the other people, and uh, they said, yeah, we've been sold to Williams. Some of you will be let go, so that was kind of a nerve-wracking time. But I think the ones that went, or it was me and Jim Patla. I think Greg Kamick was already gone by then. And Ward Pemberton, he went, and I think that was about it, as far as game designers. So when you went over to Williams, was the, was the company culture a lot different than Bally? The company what? The company culture. Well, we all felt like outsiders for a long time. Each designer had his own office. I remember at Bally, we just had uh, cubicles. Oh, no, I had an office. I had an office when I was at Bally. But it was run essentially the same. So it was basically just uh, the paycheck was different, not much more? Let's see. Yeah, I don't think the paycheck was much more to start with. No, I meant just the... Huh? I, I meant the name on the paycheck. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That was different, and um, we struggled for a while to get things done, all the ballet designers, because uh, we had trouble getting stuff done in the model shop and the prototype shop, and but eventually uh, they realized we could do some things. So you mean they didn't believe in you guys at first? They were like, you guys were just like leftover baggage or something, it sounds like. That's what we felt like. We were the company that they had to buy. When you came over, I mean, you know, you were, what, in Bensonville before, and now you were, like, downtown Chicago, right? Yeah. Yeah, how was that transition? I just had to uh, learn to deal with Chicago's freeways. Now, the first game that they had you uh, work on, though, was Elvira and the Party Monsters. And that, you know, that's kind of a big, that's a big theme and a big, you know, it turned out to be a really successful game. I mean, how did you land that project? Now, the first game that they had you uh, work on, though, was Elvira and the Party Monsters. And that, you know, that's kind of a big, that's a big theme and a big, you know, it turned out to be a really successful game. I mean, how did you land that project? Nobody at Williams thought that was going to be, this was their first license, I think, or one of their first licenses. Now, the first game that they had you uh, work on, though, was Elvira and the Party Monsters. And that, you know, that's kind of a big, that's a big theme and a big, you know, it turned out to be a really successful game. I mean, how did you land that project? Nobody at Williams thought that was going to be, this was their first license, I think.
don't think they expected much from it. Was it your idea to get that license? No, that was Roger Sharp's idea. And Roger Sharp presented it. I don't know if if none of the Williams guys were interested or if they all had projects at the time. But I remember um, they didn't know who to assign it to. So uh, I worked on some ideas and Jim Patla worked on some ideas. And they eventually selected the way that I wanted to go, and, and I got the project. I mean, was that an easy project or a hard project? I mean, the game came out great. I mean, it's a killer game. Fun project. It was, It was. Um, I think that was the first one Greg and I worked on together, and we just had a, a great time working on that game. Did you ever get to meet, you know, Cassandra? Oh, yeah, we met Cassandra several times for that game and also for Scared Stiff. And now what is the deal with the, the broken bone thing on the, on the play field? Uh, that's a story probably everybody knows by now. During um, When I went to Williams, uh, that's when I met Steve and Mark Ritchie, and I hadn't ridden uh, any dirt bikes since, I'm, since I started back to college in Ohio and then moved out to Chicago, and I found out that Steve and Mark used to ride a little when they were in California. And so Steve had some old beat-up bike, and Mark had a, a bike, and we went down to uh, a riding area in southern Illinois, I'd never been there before. I think I think they were. So we were riding, and we came out of the woods onto this nice little dirt road. There was about four of us. I forget who some of the other guys were. Steve's son was there too, and I was I was last, and so I was showing off, and uh, I went blowing past Mark, and I was concentrating on Mark and not on the road. And as soon as I passed Mark, the road made a sharp right turn, and there's no way I could make the turn, and I hit some rough stuff off to the side of the road and flew over the bars. And all I can rem- I remember a loud noise, and I can remember just kind of laying there on my side. And I looked down, and my my left leg, my femur, was bent in a V shape. And I thought, oh man, I really screwed up now. And Mark came over, and he was really scared and nervous. And I couldn't catch my breath because I broke three ribs and knocked the wind out of me. And he ripped my helmet off, which he probably shouldn't have done. He says, oh, Dennis, don't do this to me. Dennis, hang in there. So I spent three months in the hospital, and I had just, before we went riding, I had just about finished the Elvira Whitewood. So during the three months I was in the hospital, um, Steve did some work on the game, and I believe Mark did some work on the game, and Jim Patla did a lot of work on the game. I think Jim Patla actually kind of like took over as director, and... Um, they refined a few areas, did everything it took to get it into production. So they didn't make any big changes to the to the design. No, but that's so that's why Greg put all the broken bones all over the back glass. Now, in when they were doing this, and you were in the hospital, did they like bring by you know design pictures or ideas? I was drawings, and um, Chris Graner would bring tapes of the music and. And Mark Panacho, the programmer, would come, and we'd have meetings. So we got it done. So when it did turn out to be a really successful game, I mean, you know, was 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 uh, was management surprised? The only thing I can remember was when we won Best New Product of the Show, they seemed surprised, but they just never made a very big deal about it and my this is just my own personal feeling I think they were a little embarrassed that a ballet guy could do that and they didn't 
sell enough of them, they cut it off too soon. Yeah, because they probably could have really cranked up the... I mean, they sold somewhere around, I don't know, 4,000 or so, but they, they could have really cranked the production on that one up. Oh, they sold more police horses. Yeah, go figure that, because that game is not memorable compared to Elvira. I know, so... That's what we, as ballet designers, felt we had to deal with. Was there ever a, a point in time where you overcame that, that um, I don't know, that, that, that second-class citizen feeling? I felt, I, I felt like I did with Whitewater because finally I broke the 4,000 barrier, and that game did like 7,000, I think. Well, your next one after Elvira was, um, was the Dr. Dude. Now, whose idea was that for that theme? That theme was Greg's idea. Greg had a lot of influence um, on all the party themes. Dr. Dude was originally, I had started that, I think that was my first game that I had started at Williams. Uh, it was going to be uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And that spinning disc area, was, it was going to be like some kind of Dr. Doom machine or some kind of machine that the turtles had to destroy. But management thought that theme was a little too juvenile, so we didn't do it. So it sat for a while. Then I did Elvira, and after Elvira, I went back to it. And Greg came up with this Dr. Dude and his excellent Ray idea. Yeah, because uh, Data East ended up with that, you know... Yeah, Data East ended up with Ninja Turtles. And that their version of that game, and it certainly doesn't do anything for me. I don't know if that makes you feel better or not. <laughs> no, I didn't mind not doing it, you know. So the whole party theme was really, was, 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 Greg's, was Greg's thing? It was Greg's influence, yeah. So he was a party guy. Well, there was a lot to do. With, there was a lot of things you could do with a theme like that. And you didn't have to pay any royalties. Damn, we didn't have to pay any royalties. So, were you happy with uh, the Doctor Dude in the end? Oh, sure. I'm, I was always happy with every game in the end. Um, and then you always want to go on to the next one and do better. That was basically like a on the hardware platform. That was like a system. 11 platform, but they made a few with the, the newer WPC hardware. I mean, how do, is there any reason that came about? You'll have to ask somebody smarter than me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't pay any attention to the hardware. I just like to have fun. So then you did another party theme. You went to Party Zone. Was that was the... right after Dr. Dude? Yeah, right after. Wow. We had partying on the brain, didn't we? You sure did. And that was that Greg again helping out? Oh, yeah. And uh, that sort of incorporated all of the party games together. Because I think we had party animals in there and party dudes. And and then the party zone was like the ultimate party game. Now, that game was... Our system for that one. Yeah, there you go. Now, that game you, was one of the early games to use a dot matrix display. Did that um, did that influence your design at all? Uh, no. Nope, I just thought the dot matrix guy do, do what they wanted to do for that one. So they had complete reign there. Mm-hmm. But how did you feel about the dot matrix displays compared to the alphanumeric stuff? Well, they looked like a cool improvement because um, we could do so much more with them. But at the same time, if you're watching the game, it's kind of hard to realize what's going on in the dot matrix display, too. But part of it was, well, it, it kind of 
attract other players because they can see it from across the room and something cool is happening, and it made pinball look fresh and new. Now, the, at this time, the the Bally games had a, kind of a different cabinet style than the Williams games. Were you responsible for that at all? No, and and I don't even remember that. Yeah, they had like... They wanted to keep a different look. They probably wanted to keep... Uh, I, oh, now I remember at the time, the, the Bally games were going to be the licensed games, and the Williams games were going to be the original games. And so... They wanted to keep a different look to the cabinets, too, just to differentiate between the two brands. Yeah, then your next game was actually a Williams title, and that was the one that you really hit the ball out of the park. Uh, you know, of course, Whitewater. Uh-huh. Now, are you a Whitewater-type sporting kind of guy? No, I never did Whitewater rafting, but um, I just thought that would be an exciting theme. So did you pick that theme? Yes. So did w- to convince management that it would be good. I don't remember what I did to convince them, but I remember going to the library and getting a lot of books on whitewater rafting and um, learning all about it so I can get all the terminology right and and make it seem like a real rafting experience. That's where I got the idea for for Bigfoot because in one of the books I read there was a. I think in a, there's a river in Washington State, and there's a legend that uh, Bigfoot comes around at night and steals all the rafters' supplies. So that's how I got the idea for the Bigfoot character in the game. I've never heard that before. <laughs> well, amazing game. I mean, I I own one of those games, and it's just the 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 whole thing with the. I guess it's kind of your style with that kind of um, you know modified flat plastic and, and vacuum form plastic stuff but I mean you and you had the whirlpool ramp again and that and the ramp down the left side that goes up and down kind of like a like a wave that the whole game is just really is cool that game um, I had I had it in my mind with all these different levels but there was I couldn't draw this game because I had no idea how all this stuff was going to fit together vertically so I made a, a, a foam core and cardboard mock-up first so I could check all, dim- all my dimensions and measurements and see if I had enough space to do everything I wanted to do. I think Jim Shelberg still has that foam core model. When you went, you know, to get all these parts made, did they, like, look at your cross-eyed, you know, with all these funky ramps and stuff? Um, no, it was... It was the nice thing about working at Williams Inn was that we could pretty much do whatever we wanted to do. We, our budgets, um, I guess, were at the time for the cost of the game were way higher than what we can do now at Stern. And um, pretty much what we wanted, there's always stuff you had to take out. But um, yeah, I don't think a game like Whitewater could be made now. Well, was there anything in Whitewater that that had to come out, you know, for for cost reason? There was. I don't remember, but I always remember the standard joke. We always used to put a lot of drop targets in, so when something had to come out, we'd pull them out. <laughs> I've heard that before. They were an, that was an expensive unit, and drop targets are cool, but they're expensive. And at the time, I guess we everybody was really into designing, you know, wild ramps and other mechanical things so the drop targets would be the first to go was there anything in that game that uh, that you were that you were sorry that you did or that you sorry that you didn't do in whitewater 
Well, I can't think of, of anything either way right now. I was I was really happy that it that it all came together. I wish the uh, the molded plastics, like the boulders, had been made out of a stronger material. Now, did you do you do the rules design too when it comes to these games? I, I do some of the rules. Um, Mike Boone did some of the rules. It's it's not like one guy says we're going to do it this way. Um, I'm, I'm sure I had a lot of pull because I was like the director and the designer of the game and. A lot of the basic stuff was mine, but then Mike could incorporate uh, whatever he wanted, and I think that um, Chris and Greg also uh, participated in the rule design. That's that's the way it worked for most games. Whoever had a, a great, whoever had a decent idea, if everybody liked it, it, it went in the game. Yeah, because Mike's rule was the vacation jackpot. I mean, that's one of his major contributions, and I thought, because I'm not a very good player, and I thought, Mike, that's really stupid. Nobody's ever going to get that. But it turned out to be one of the things that a lot of people talk about. Yeah, the, the depth of the rules in that game is is was was really, really quite quite deep, at, you know. Yeah, I think that was probably my first really deep game, and I liked all of the I'm not sure I planned it from the beginning, but I liked all the different strategies that you could use to play that game and try to stack things up so you could get the highest points, try to stack things up so you could get it to work with 5X play field. thought that the Bigfoot was kind of cool myself. I had fun with the Bigfoot guy like that. And, the, and his face was modeled after me. John Yousey came out to my house and did some caricature sketches of me. And then we gave those to the sculptor. And um, so I'm Bigfoot on that game. <laughs> I don't know. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? <laughs> I think it's a good thing. I, I don't know if that's something I'd put on my resume. <laughs> well, I had a lot of big hair and a dark beard at the time, so I kind of looked kind of Bigfooty. All right, we're going to take a break from our talk with Dennis Norman, and we'll be back right after this message. This portion of TopCast is brought to you by Pin Game Journal, covering the world of pinball. Visit them online at www.pingamejournal.com. All right, we're back with Dennis Nordman. Now, the topper on that game with the, with the waterfall lights, whose idea was that? That was another, well, that was one of those happy accidents. A salesman called Greg and said he had this new material that he could create motion with, uh, in this foil material with chasing lights. And so Greg said, okay, come on in, we'll look at it. And we saw it, and it was amazing. And I actually forget what he demonstrated. I don't know if it was a waterfall or not. So we asked him if he could do a waterfall, and it took a while, but we got it working right, and it was a pretty cool effect. It just happened. <laughs> now, whose idea was it to have a blue cabinet? Uh, probably John Yalsey's. So he would... Controversial? No, just, I mean, most... Or, oh, no, I mean, other than Funhouse, everything's basically got a black cabinet. Yeah, I know. Well, uh, blue water, I guess. Yeah, there you go. So that was that was the, the, art, the art guy who came up with that one. Yeah, that was John. Did you have an artist that you like to work with, at a, you know? I, I Well, it, it turns out that I worked with Greg the most, so I, I always really enjoyed working with Greg. 
Now, why didn't Greg do the the art for that game for Whitewater? He was busy on something else, and I don't know what else was was around then. But uh, Greg did the the um, the topper for Whitewater, but John did the um, the backlash, and I'm sure Greg would remember why, but I don't remember. So your next game was Demolition Man, and um, tell me about some of the challenges that went through on that game. That game was a little hard because um, I had the script to work with and some pictures, but I, I really tried hard to make it follow the movie and to make it a lot like the movie, and I think I was successful at that, but when I saw the movie, I wasn't really very impressed with the movie. But it had a lot of battle scenes in it, and I, I liked working with the, the wider body, and um, that game had a lot of nice flow and ramp shots. So I enjoyed building that game, and I liked, uh, I put those handles on it because the the movie was nothing but weapons and guns and firing and shooting, and I thought, oh, wouldn't it be cool if I could make the player feel like he's part of this and like he's firing guns and weapons, and so that's how those those handles came about. Whose idea was it to make, you know, the scoring is almost different if you play with the handles instead of the flipper buttons. Who idea? Whose idea was that? Uh Whose idea was what? The the scoring was almost different if you if you use the 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 handles versus the flipper buttons. Whose idea was that? I vaguely remember some of that, but I don't remember whose idea that was. Probably that might have been um, Ted Estes. Encourage people to use the handles. I don't know. And what about the uh, the art? What there, I heard there were some challenges with the art in uh, Wesley Snipes and and Stallone. Had a lot of challenges with that art because. Everybody wanted their head the same size, and everybody wanted their head big. So Doug finally just gave up and, and did what <laughs> what all the talent wanted, and and um, that's how the backlash came out. So when you did a, a backlash like that, you I mean you'd actually have to give a copy to each one of the actors, and they'd have to sign off on it. For every license game, we have they have to sign off on it. Sure. And was this it was always easy to work with? El- Elvira was easy. Yeah, she was easy to work with. She was just happy to have a pinball game. Well, I mean, yeah, she's got all the attributes, and she's the only actress too in the, in the back class. Yeah, right. You know, so here you got three people. Uh, you know, you got Stallone, and you got Snipes, and I guess to a smaller degree, Bullock, right? Right. Now, was Bullock very hard to work with? We really never had. We never worked with those people. It was just getting the approvals for the illustration for the artwork. So who complained the most? You know, you'd have to talk to Doug about that. I don't know. I think I think uh, it might have been Wesley complained a lot because he, he didn't like looking real sinister from what I remember. But he was such a sinister guy in the movie. All right, now the next one you did was Indianapolis 500. And now, I've got that game. And, well, it, it's... I, I, why don't any of the cars ever crash? Talk to Indy Marketing. <laughs> they go around and around and around and around and around, but nobody ever crashes. No, you can't. Well, no, we couldn't have crashes. I actually had, and Mark Wayner reminded me of this. I had this uh, little plastic box that I had a bunch of crashed car parts in it. And you were going to hit it with the ball, and parts would fly everywhere, and they absolutely would not allow any crashing. So you couldn't have anything? I mean, it seems kind of hypocritical. Well, they just didn't want to promote crashing. They wanted to promote the uh, 
quality racing. Maybe you guys should have went for the NASCAR theme instead. <laughs> I don't think those guys would have complained. No, <laughs> they kind of like crashing, don't they? They sure seem to. <laughs> they, I mean, all the 6 o'clock highlights are always crashes. I know it, yeah. But Indy 500 was more up upscale, uptown, huh? Hell yeah, that was, uh, yeah. So, I mean, was that game, were you were you satisfied with that game in the end? Yeah, I'm, I was pretty satisfied with every game in the end. But, I mean, was it, it didn't, didn't like, a, you know, a theme limiter like that, you know, kind of taking a lot of the fun out, didn't that kind of, you know, curtail your creativity? Yeah, there's all, especially with licensed games, there's always something that you want to do that you can't do. I had problems with pirates, and I'm having problems with my current game, but licensing gives you a different set of problems than, than an original theme. Um, yeah, but there's always some things that you feel like your hands are tied. You have to work around it. Yeah, the one thing in uh, Indy 500, it never seems like uh, the race ever really comes to a conclusive end. Yeah, I, and you know, I haven't played that game for a while, and I kind of forget how it all works. Now, the next one, of course, was the you know one of my favorite games, and that's the the Scared Stiff, which is like basically Elvira two. So, how was uh, was Cassandra? Now was a little bit older. Was she easier or harder to work with at this point? Oh, uh, she was just as easy to work with, and just as fun to work with. And um, there's a lot of people at Williams that didn't want to do that game at all because they thought, oh, we did Elvira once. Why do you want to do it again? So was that your idea to get that theme again? Yeah, I wanted to get it again, and then Greg came on board, and he wanted to do it again, too. And I um, um, I had gone to a car show in Chicago, and I knew Elvira was making an appearance there. And um, so I, I was able to talk to her at the car show, and she said, sure, she'd love to do another game. So that's how that got started. Now, the some of the interesting stuff on that game, like... Um, the the glow in the dark parts. Tell how did that come about, and why didn't that end up in the final? You know, like in the final production versions. Well, in the beginning, the plastic molder told us, "Oh yeah, that glow in the dark stuff that'll be free. That won't cost you anything. I'll just throw that in there." And um, I just thought it would be nice because I thought at one point I'd like to turn off all the lights in the game, and I knew that stuff would be activated by the lights in the game. So if you played in a dark room. You'd see all these bones glowing, um, but it turned out, I guess, after I got laid off, they decided to uh, raise the price on the glow-in-the-dark bones, so they had to leave the glow-in-the-dark stuff out. Now, the the bony beast uh, head in that, why did that have so many different incarnations? Yeah, you know, I don't know why we why the sculptor would change it. I don't know why it was changed so many times. Because each one looked pretty cool, but maybe he just felt like he wanted to tweak it a little bit here and there, and maybe some of the early ones would have been too hard to mold because they had too much detail in them. Now, the the skull pile with the LEDs and the candle flames, was that just a, a cost savings thing, why that didn't get implemented into the final game? Yeah, that was a cost saving thing. The skull pile... I found that when I was at uh, Disney World, and I went through the Pirates of the Caribbean ride, and I came out, and they have a little store there, and I saw this pile of skulls, and I thought, oh, wow, that might be cool for my next Elvira game. So I bought it, and I uh, drilled out all the eyes and stuck some LEDs in there, and it looked really nice. 
so then we sculpted our own, and we had the LED boards made. They were flexible. They were boards that were designed to be bent and, and fit in place. So they had all the engineering work done and some boards made and everything, but for cost reasons, they took it out. Now, whose idea was it to include that that decal to hide the cleavage on Elvira? I believe that was marketing again. Those guys screw up everything. You know, family locations wouldn't get irritated. Yeah, those guys screw up everything, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> On the first Elvira, uh, Elvira and the Party Monsters, I had red eyes in the skull, and they made us change it to green because they said in the South that uh, the red eyes represent the devil and they could never sell any games in the South. Okay. <laughs> so that's why the Skull Mountain on uh, Elvira and the Party Monsters has green eyes. Now, there was a change on the playfield. This is kind of a bizarre one, but the Stiffometer Level 3, the face on there changed. Is there any story behind that? I don't know what the deal is with that. That's something you'll have to ask Greg about. Was there anything else, anything else that was uh, any good stories or anything fun about that game? Oh, there's probably a million of them. I just I can't remember them all. The one uh, the one story I remember is that we had a hell of a time trying to come up with a cool name for that game, and we got really far along. And Greg needed a name because he was doing the artwork. Greg and I kept coming up with Elvira and the Spooky Spider, or Elvira and the Haunted House, or Elvira and the something or other, and it just wasn't working. And Finally, Greg and I thought we had it, and I forget what it was that we decided was so great. And we went in and we told Mike Boone, and and we were Greg and I were so excited and relieved to finally have this problem solved. And Mike just went, "Eh, that's not so great." And so we were really bummed. And we went back to my office, and we were sitting there, kind of feeling glum. And Greg looks up, and his eyes get wide, and he says, "Scared stiff." And we knew right then that was the name. Yeah, that is, that's a great name. Now, what about the RRR thing on the side of the cabinet? That's another, that's another Greg thing. And he, uh, it was just an enhancement of rated R. This game was rated RRR, and I think it was uh, uh, rude, raunchy, and ribbed, or something like that. Maybe not rude, raunchy, and I, I forget what it all was. But it got kind of, kind of, taken off the side more or less kind of yeah we had to get rid of it so they he put a claw mark through it what was the what they it was just a little too too over the edge too risque i guess what happened in 1996 like almost done with that project was that did you get caught up in the black thursday layoff or something i did and man i was so into work on my game i had no idea that was coming that was i was stunned in fact that morning we, uh, Mike and I, and was it Chris Graner or Paul Heitch? I think it was Paul Heitch went downtown Chicago for a um, a sound recording. Uh, Cassandra was going to call in over and do some sound recording, but they had screwed up their schedule and and she wasn't available. So we came back home, and I mean, came back came back to the office, and that's when I got laid off. It was me and John Trudeau and Barry Ausler. And where did you go from there? 
Oh, I designed some redemption games for skee-ball. Uh, Tower of Power, which is a pretty popular game. You see that almost in every location. Yeah, it's kind of a standard redemption game. Yeah. And um, then I, I tried um, a few games on my own, and um, I sold one to Bromley. It did okay, but not great. And then Joe Kamenkow gave me a call uh, to come out and work at IGT but, and so to design like new mechanical devices for uh, slot machine bonus uh, topper things. Hmm. And um, my wife didn't want to move, so he let me work here from my home in Chicago, and I'd fly out there every month with like a new idea. They patented a lot of my ideas, and used three or four of them on their slot machine games, and then uh, one day Ray Tanzer gave me a call and asked me if I'd like to design pin games for Stern, and I said absolutely. So do you still work for IGT like on a part-time basis? Oh, not at all. So you mean you blew off IGT? I at IGT and went to work full-time for Stern. Oh, so you're, you're like on the payroll then for Stern? I'm an employee at IGT. And, and now you're on the payroll with Stern. Right. And, of course, you've got a great theme, Pirates of the Caribbean. I mean, that God, you, you couldn't ask for a better theme. Oh, that was a tremendous theme. I was very fortunate to have that for the theme for my first game after 10 years. Yeah, how was it to have, like, a 10-year layoff, and then was it hard to get back in the groove? No, because I always really wanted to design another pinball game. And um, it was a little harder at Stern because... We had to do a lot more than I was used to doing at Williams. At Williams, we always had people that would digitize our play fields and make sure everything was correct. And we just uh, we had a lot more help at Williams. I have to do uh, the designers at Stern have to do a lot more with making sure you got the the uh, punch drawing on the on the bottom of the play field on the top of the play field, so all your parts are correct. You have to do the trap line for the uh, artwork and. Uh, just a lot more things you have to do, so there was a lot of things I had to learn that I hadn't done before. Was the, was the corporate environment uh, significantly different at Stern compared to Williams? Um, but the major difference I see is that Gary has a lot of control over everything, but it's Gary's company. So. You mean the management kind of stayed out of the way at Williams? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, yeah, they, they would, you know, put their fingers in once in a while, but they let us we were able to do a lot of stuff that we wanted to do. So is is Gary pretty easy to work with, or is he kind of a control freak? Uh, Gary likes to have a lot of control, and there's there's certain things that he believes has to be in every game. But I like his, his philosophy is that he really tries to get every game to have something for the novice or beginning player that they can at least begin to understand what's going on. So he always fights for things like that. What are, You said that there's certain things that he wants that he demands in every game. Like, Do you mean like from a hardware point of view? You know, like as far as, you know... Every game has to have jet bumpers. That's a pinball game. Every game needs a plunger shot. Things like that. Where Williams didn't have those criteria. Right. Hmm. Now, was there any good stories in working with Pirates? There's obviously another... Uh, licensed theme from Disney, were they easy to work with? No, they were the most difficult license we ever worked with. Everything was separate for that license. The only thing we got was the title, 
We didn't get actors. We didn't get music. We didn't get lines from the movie. Everything was separate. So, you know, in that respect, I was a little disappointed with the game because we couldn't make it exactly like the movie. But um, I was still real happy with the way the, the sinking ship came out. Was that your design, that toy? Yeah. I mean, I... I made a like a little model of how I of how I wanted it to work, but I had no idea how he could actually do it. But I just want I knew I wanted it to to sink the way that it looks and the sails fall down. But but uh, John Rothermel, the mechanical guy, he's the guy that made it work. I had no idea how to do all that. Now is um you say that you couldn't get any of the you couldn't use any lines from the movie. No. So that must have been now Disney. Everything is is separate. It was it was disappointing. I mean, even Gary, I don't think realized that in the beginning. And I just I remember thinking, wow, if Walt Disney was still in charge of this, this would never happen. Was it? You mean you would? You mean everything was kind of like a la carte, where you get the title, you pay this much. If you want this actor, you pay more. If you want lines from the movie, you pay more. Yes. And it would just spin out of control, price wise. Oh yeah. So we just couldn't do it. Basically, you had to make your own Pirates of the Caribbean movie. Yeah, that's what we did. Now the we licensed the the one song, uh, "Yo Ho Yo Ho," it's a pirate's life for me. We had to pay for that. Johnny Depp wasn't interested in doing the the lines, but we had to use a Disney supplied sound alike, and um, we would have had to have done that for every character in the movie. So we just couldn't afford it. So you mean you you actually did talk to to the actor Depp and he just had no interest. We didn't we didn't but through through his agent and our representative at Disney that's how that happened yeah. So then they give kind of like a a fake Johnny as it may be <laughs> to speak his to speak your the lines that you're writing. Yes. And how did you think that the uh, the fake Johnny turned out compared to the real Johnny? It sounded good. But you couldn't use... He's the only one that you could basically copy in the whole movie. He's the only character that we could use from the movie, but we couldn't use lines. We couldn't even use his lines from the movie. <laughs> they really had you handcuffed. Oh, I know. It was, it was difficult. And then we had uh, everything recorded, and we had no time to change it, and then Disney decided they didn't like half of the stuff because I, I think Disney... We worked with, I guess, Disney marketing, and then Disney Studios got involved, and they wanted to change more stuff. So at least a third of the script stuff we wanted to use, we had to eliminate it because we had no time to re-record it, and they made little changes, a few words here and there, and we couldn't use it. Did this screw up your timeline big time? Well, we missed, I don't know if that was, I don't think that was the reason we missed the movie opening, but it it just meant that there was a lot of stuff we wanted in that we couldn't put in. Is it something you can go back later and add back in? I don't think so, no. Because we'd have to go through Disney again, and, and that's not going to happen. Well, I, I'll tell you one thing. that, that I, You know, from best that I could tell, that game sold like gangbusters. That game, I believe, is over 5,000 in less than a year. And now with the new movie coming out, I, I you know, maybe they'll tool up and do it again. Yeah, well, we keep running them every once in a while. We get more and more orders. I mean, I guess some hardcore players it doesn't appeal to, but we did something right because we sold a ton of them. I, I think it's a really good game. I mean, I, I've never really, 
I, yeah, I guess some of the hardcore people maybe you know they don't think it's hard enough or something, but you know that's it, that that comment does not come up a lot, you know. And I have to give Dwight credit. Dwight had four months to do that game, and um, I think he did a tremendous job in four months. How long does they usually get? A six to eight. So you have that boy working overtime. Oh, those programmers, they all work over. We all work overtime. So what is the secret to creating a pinball that's fun to play? Is it ball flow, toys, theme, all the above? Oh, my God, that's that's a good question. Yeah, it's like the question of the day, right? <laughs> question of the year. <laughs> Why ask me that question? Well, I, well, you know, you, you got to understand that the the Whitewater is like, I mean, you set the mark so high with that game. You know, I mean, people just I, they rant and rave about that game. Yeah, that was a very successful game. You know, and somebody else asked, "What your next game in Stern? Is there any way that it'll be reminiscent of Whitewater?" And and I, I know you kind of spoke to that a little bit that Whitewater was really expensive to make and that nothing. Could, you, that you probably don't have the budget to do that, but I mean, is there any, you know, anything that's reminiscent of Whitewater in any of your, you know, the next game or future games? Boy, I don't think you're going to see a Whitewater again. I mean, we, we even have trouble trying to budget a mini playfield in anymore. You mean a plastic mini playfield? Well, plastic is more doable than um, <clears throat> than a, than another wooden one. That's for sure. It's just too much money, huh? I believe that, yeah, in, in today's market, it's just too much money. It's, uh, you know, all of our costs have gone up so much. Copper and just everything we do, everything's gone up. And Gary's trying to hold the line on price increases. And um, so our budgets become tighter and tighter for what's in the games. Is that make things really, really tough or just medium tough? Um, well, I'll say that it makes them medium tough because... Um, Whatever you design, it's, it's just a challenge to work within the envelope that you have. And, you know, you have a certain envelope, a certain budget, and so that's the challenge is to try to make something fun within that envelope. Uh, sometimes, you know, I don't have any formulas or anything that I work with. I, I start with a blank sheet of paper on every game, and... Whatever comes to me or whatever direction the game kind of tells me that it wants to go, that's that's the way I go. Um, so I really, I have to have a theme firmly in mind before I can even start drawing a play field because the theme dictates what the features are and the shots are to me. That's the way I work anyway. Well, I mean, is there, are you saying some themes are make are maybe more flowing and others are more stop and go like that? Oh, no. Now the reason pirates was stop and go. Here was here was my thinking on that. Uh, we 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 try to attract new players, and there's just not as many people playing in public as there used to be. Now part of that is because there's no arcades. I've talked to um, experienced hardcore players that can't even find games on location anymore. They travel around the different bars and they can't even find games. So trying to attract new players and keep the highly skilled players, that's that's a delicate balance. And what I tried to do with Pirates was 
my thinking was that if the ball's always flying back to the flippers, that's going to intimidate um, a new player or a casual player because he'll be afraid he's got a flip and he's not scoring anything. So with Pirates, I intentionally made the ball go places and stay there and score so the casual player would feel good, like he's accomplishing something. Like when you go up into the spinning disc or something, it stays there for a while and scores. And and um, so I purposely didn't try to deliver the ball to the flipper all the time. Um, it must, you know, I must have gotten something right because we've sold a hell of a lot of those games, more than a lot of other games. Um, it's a cool. Now my new game that I'm working on now, it's going to have a lot more flow. Just to keep things interesting and challenging to me, I want to do something different every time. Hmm. So, like, if I was successful with Whitewater, I didn't start making everything like Whitewater. I, I still like to experiment with new stuff. And when you experiment, you you can fail a lot, too, and not always be successful. But that's what makes the design process challenging and keeps me interested. When I just started doing clones of something that was successful. It wouldn't be fun for me anymore. And did, um, did the Black Rose at Williams, did that have any influence on Pirates whatsoever? No. I, I looked at that game, but... Um, just to see what it was and see what was on it, but and then I just didn't look at it anymore. And uh, I consciously there was no um, influence. I, I heard that there was. I, I heard that there was like a black rose pirate though in the Stearns. Maybe that was probably the software guys, though, right? Oh, that yeah, probably. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they do stuff I never know about. <laughs> Oh, really? Those software guys. Oh, yeah, they always do that. Put in Easter eggs and things like that, yeah. And, they, and you have, and you just, they don't tell you? Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. I, I don't really care. You know, if, if they want to put in some secret stuff that makes it fun for them, then I'm all for it. Hmm. All right, one other question we got from another another email question. This one's, um, well, you can judge by this one. Why didn't pirates have at least an orbit in one direction? The lack of an orbit seemed to severely limit flow in the game. And and I think you kind of answered that in your in your prior. I think, yeah, I think that that would be my answer. I would say the same thing again. And I don't remember. I'd have to go back and look at all my games, but I don't know if I've ever done an orbit shot before. Hmm. Now maybe you can think off the top of your head. But I'm not sure if I have. An orbit that goes from, say, from the right flipper to the left side of the play field all the way around and comes back to the right flipper. I don't know. I don't know that I've ever really done that before. Well, there you go. Next game. It's it's on this game. <laughs> it's on my next game. So, yeah, that's why there's no orbit on Pirates. Again, my, my reasoning was I was trying not to intimidate a casual or or new player. How many of those we have? I have no idea of those kinds of players. I don't know. Appealed to a lot of people because we've sold five thousand of those at this point. And that's an amazing run for this time and age. Day and age, that's an amazing run in less than a year. And it's back on the assembly line, right? Well, a lot of our game, yeah, it's back. It'll be back for when it's back for another couple hundred, I believe. Hmm. So, um, but we do that. Well, you know, Stern does that a lot now. Right. So I imagine pirates will run on and off for a while when they get more orders. Just like, um, you know, we've 
run Simpsons and Lord, and we do that a lot. Gary does that a lot. He can make money doing that, so that's cool. Right. Right. Um, now, now, how are you? Are you paid for games per sales, or are you just flat play, paid? I'm just uh, um, a salaried employee. Now, are all the designers like that? I don't know what all their deals are. I know they, they're, the rest of them are under contract because they don't work for Stern. They, um, so I get, I'm just like an employee. I get the health benefits and all of that stuff. The other guys have a contract to do a game and whether they get, if they get royalties or not, I, I don't know the answer to all of that. But that was different than when you were at Williams, right? Williams, we did get royalties, yes. Was that nice? All amount, but, uh, you know, it, it helped when a game got done. I mean, it was the, so you're saying that the royalties wasn't like the big, the big cheese at the end. No, no. It was just like a pleasant. It was like a pleasant little bonus at the end of every game. Right. My royalties were. I don't know what the other guys' deals were. Oh, you mean it could be variable per designer? It could have been. Sure. I'm sure our salaries were different, and so I, I don't know. What so, buddy's individual deal was. So when you sell five thousand pirates, it's just a feel good for you. Yes. Well, it's a pretty good feel good. It's a pretty good feel good, and yeah. And um, you gotta like it. You gotta like it. Yeah, you gotta love it. Even though you know, even though there are some people that aren't happy with it, there's more people that are happy with it. So no, I think it's a great game, and I don't mind the criticism. I, I, um, you know, you can't please everybody all the time. I, I think you please the mass populace pretty well with that game. Uh, oh, I agree. I'll agree with that, and that's what keeps us in business. Right. So that, that's. So in that respect, the game was hugely successful, yeah. Now, what was your question on Whitewater? Let me see if I can go back and your original question. What is the secret to creating a pinball that's fun? Is it the flow, the toys, the theme? I don't think there's any one secret. There's uh, several combinations of all of those elements, I would say, that could make a game fun. Um, <clears throat> you don't need all of the elements in every game, and... Um, but you probably need some of the elements in every game, but in different combinations. Right. For example, Pirates doesn't have flow, but it's fun and, and successful. So, so you know, that game's good. Whitewater and Demolition Man had much more flow, and they were successful. So um, I don't know the secret to a successful game because there's just dozens of different approaches. Right. And you can't take the same one every time. I I won't. I just won't do it because then it's not fun for me. Right. And that's why I design games because I find it rewarding and challenging. I I really have get more enjoyment out of designing than I do playing. If you were going to do a game, uh, a, a future game with Stern, could you even have the number of plastic molded ramps that were on Whitewater in, in today's games? Uh, the ramps, possibly, yeah. But it's the 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 actual mini wood playfield. That's the big expense. That's a big expense because that that comes out of a whole separate piece of wood, and uh, so to screen that and to and to even if you can, I was going to say even if you can cut the wood out of the regular playfield, that is cheaper, but then it's expensive to mount it. I mean, we're really cutting we're really cutting pennies out of these games, hmm. and. Um, so even 
you know, to, to design some Z brackets or whatever to mount another play field, um, those become parts that are 25, 30, 50 cents. Do you still run that standard joke at Stern, too, where you try and put drop targets and everything so you got something to axe out? Well, this is only my second game here at Stern, and I haven't had even time to do that with either, <laughs> with either of my games. So, But stuff gets axed out, like on Pirates, I don't know. Some people know that there was a jet bumper down by the outlane and um, a, a series of targets around it so that when you drained on the left side, that was going to be my parlay feature and give you a chance to bounce off the jet bumper and hit the targets and spell extra oh spell parlay and then you would get another chance at life um, so that feature came out because that was too expensive there were inline drop targets and pirates they came out because they were too expensive so now you're working on a new game for stern right yeah can you talk about that at all well i, I can probably tell you that it's wheel of fortune most people a lot of people know that. I can't tell you a lot about it, but I can tell you that I think I like the theme, and I was happy to get the theme, because I think it's the kind of game that you're going to walk up to, and we keep trying to attract, we keep trying to do things to attract new players. If we just designed games for the hardcore players, we'd be out of business. We have to keep trying to attract new people, and I think with Wheel of Fortune, when anybody walks up to the game, they're going to know exactly what their main goal is and exactly what they have to do. A lot of games are so confusing, you don't know what you're supposed to do. You just, to, to casual players, you just bash the ball around and hope something good happens. But with Wheel of Fortune, you know that you're supposed to solve word puzzles. And the targets to do that are, are uh, very obvious, right in the middle of the game where everybody shoots. I think it's going to be cool. Is it, like, use a lot of drop targets? I don't want to say what it's going to have in it. Because it's a big secret, because we don't like to talk about future games, because we don't want to um, do anything to slow the sales of current games. Well, did the... I mean, the the one thing that I'm sure that people are going to kind of compare this game to is the World Poker Tour. And the same uh, basic idea could... You know, everybody knows how to play poker. How to play cards. Yeah, you know, and, and uh, people are, are definitely going to make that comparison, but World Poker Tour just did not really do well. It, and are, are you afraid that that may happen in this case? No, I don't think so. I think maybe one of the problems with World Poker Tour, I, I, didn't, I don't know how to play poker, and I didn't play that game a lot because I was busy working on my first pinball game after 10 years. So... But as I understand, there's two games you can play. There's Texas Hold'em and something else you can play. And I think some people got confused with, I don't know, with, with that. And maybe that's why it didn't do so well. I mean, it wasn't simple like 8-Ball. Now, on the, on the uh, Wheel of Fortune license, do you get any of the personalities along with the license? Uh, we're working on that right now. So that's still up in the air, huh? You, you know, because I like Vanna. Well, who doesn't? <laughs> I mean, are those people easy to work with? Um, we're just now getting into it, so um, we'll find out. We sub- I, we met with um, the producers, and he liked a lot of my ideas. They're very uh, conservative and very protective of their license, so I mentioned a lot of some of the crazy wild things and humorous things I wanted to do, and... Um, 
they're very conservative and, and don't want some of those things, although some of the things I mentioned that he liked and laughed about. So we'll see. We just submitted an, an initial script um, about I want to do some funny categories. I want to do some funny trips for people to win. And um, we'll they should get back to us within the next week or so so I can see if I can get away with some of this stuff. Well, you'll know if, like, you're watching Wheel of Fortune next week and all of a sudden your categories... Categories show up. Yeah. <laughs> now, now, how, I mean, how far away is this game? Is this pretty far out? It's at least September and probably later. And did, was this uh, a theme that you actually went after? It's, it's one that Gary uh, mentioned that was available, and I said I really liked it. And um, I guess everybody else thought it was okay. So I told Gary I'd really like to do it, and um, I got it. So you didn't have to fight the other designers for this one? No, no. Yeah, I, I can't see Steve Ritchie wanting this one. She wouldn't, too. That's not, that's not Steve's style. I don't think Pat Lawler would do it either. You know, the, uh, I'm surprised they got Steve Ritchie to do World Poker Tour. Yeah, so I, I understand he didn't really want to, but well, cool, and I I wish you good luck with uh, with the with the uh, with the Wheel of Fortune. I mean, you know, if if anybody wants to follow what you know, maybe what IGT did really really good with didn't IGT have that, or was that Williams that had that? IGT had that, and they did. That's become a tremendous slot game for them, and like I said, I think it's I think people are going to be surprised because. Um, it's not going to be just boring Wheel of Fortune. It's got some interesting things in it. Think about all the trips they give away and modes you can do with that. And the programmers are all they're all pretty hyped up for try this? Yeah, I've got Keith on this game, so I'm real happy about that. And Keith is excited. Well, good. I, I, I wish you great luck with that one. I mean, you've, you've done some amazing games, and hopefully this one will be a big success for you. Well, thank you, and I hope it will too. I think I I think people are going to be surprised. So, do you like being back in the in the pinball design, you know, uh, seat again? Because I just love I love everything about the whole process. I don't like the arguing, and I don't like the stress, and I don't like the hours. But I I love everything. I love the whole creative process involved. I like. Laying out the play field and inventing toys and working the theme, integrating the theme into the play field and the rules and and uh, working a little with the artwork and uh, writing script and speech and and the choreography and the light shows and the sounds. I love the whole process. So when you had to su- submit the script, like for the Wheel of Fortune, you wrote that whole script up? No, I had like. Like three or four ideas for trips I want to take. We use a writer from Second City, and he is just fantastic. I thought I was great for, especially even with pirates. I thought I was great for coming up with five or six really cool pirate lines, and he came up with pages and pages and pages of stuff within a couple of weeks. He's he's tremendous. So you mean this is like a comedy guy that you hire? Yeah. And is that just to sell the theme back to the licensee? Well, he actually, no, he writes all the stuff that we use in the game. Really? So he does all the games? I, I don't think he did Family Guy. I know, I don't know what all he's done. I know he did Pirates, and 
I'm not sure what else he's done. He, oh, he did a lot, I believe, for Simpson. His name is uh, Glenn Eric. And this is like a little sideline for him? I, I want to put one in because he, he just comes up with so much cool stuff. Now, did you have to write scripts like that when you were at Williams, too? Yeah. In fact, we did a lot more of it by ourselves because we didn't, we didn't hire a writer. So I would come up with lines. Greg would come up with lines. So is that the hardest part about doing a game, is just getting that off the ground? No, that's not the hardest part. It's, it's one of the fun parts. Man, it would be the hard part for me. <laughs> well, wiring or doing something electrical would be the hard part for me. Man, the part I want to do is take that big piece of paper and, and draw out a play field on it. Oh, man, that's one of the most intimidating things there is, is when you're looking at that blank piece of paper, where the hell do you start? I remember with, uh, I think with Scared Stiff, I started with the monster ramp. You mean the bony beast ramp thing? Bony beast ramp. But that could be, that's the hardest, one of the hard. that's the hardest thing to get started. Figuring out what toys you want to incorporate, where to put them, how to make everything fit, make your shots smooth. That's what I'm dealing with on Wheel of Fortune right now. Is some of my shots just aren't smooth. You know, after a while, you have experience for what works and what doesn't work, but it doesn't always work the way you think it's going to work. Now, do you do that with just with paper and pen, or is that done all on, on computer? On AutoCAD. We do all our drawing on AutoCAD. And, um, all of our engineers work in SolidWorks. They do everything in 3D. I, I'm just, I just don't want to take the time to learn it. Is that, like when you started out doing Special Force and Party Animal and that, you weren't using any kind of AutoCAD back then? I, didn't, I think my first game in AutoCAD was Indy 500. Oh, so you mean even like Whitewater was done all on just pen and paper? Yeah, pencil and paper, pencil and mylar. We drew on big mylar sheets because that um, doesn't get affected by the humidity. Huh, so Indy 500 was the first one. Was that a big learning curve? Yeah, that was a learning curve for sure, yeah. So it probably took longer. I, I believe it was Indy 500 that was my first one. And is that the way all the designers have always done it? Well, that's, the, that's the way everybody works now, yeah. Well, cool. Hey, I appreciate you letting me call you up and bother you. No bother. It's, it's, uh, it's an honor. <laughs> <laughs> Just not a very good one. <laughs> it's a great honor. It's, it's nice. How many people have jobs where people call them up or talk to them or email them how much they appreciate what you do? Well, cool, Dennis. I, I really do appreciate your time. And, and, and um, again, good luck to you on this next game. Well, thank you. Yeah, I hope it turns out good, and, and I uh, appreciate your calling and talking to me. No, I appreciate the time. I, I really do, and, and thanks again. Oh, you're very welcome. All right, take care, and good night. Okay, bye. I'd like to thank Dennis Norman for joining us tonight on TopCast. It was a really good talk, and I really do appreciate his time, and I hope everyone will be back to hear us again on another episode of TopCast. TopCast.